Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Truth and movies. Aronofsky pushes the boundaries of cinema father in mother. A harrowing horror helter-skelter, but what does it mean? Victoria and Abdul, drama with the company of Old Vic. And film club, Aronofsky again, and his harrowing addiction depiction fiction, Requiem for a Dream. It's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. And today's edition of Truth and Movies features Adam Woodward. Hi, Adam. Hello. And David Jenkins. Hi. Back from a kind of a, a film detox, would that be right, David? Yeah, well, uh, or a holiday. Um, yeah. <laughs> which also, yeah, doubled as a film detox. When I said to you before I, hadn't, I didn't watch a film for two weeks, mm. that was actually a little white lie because I did sneak in one film over that two weeks. Did you? Did you sneak downstairs at 3am? and? Yeah, with a robe on and, and, and drank lemonade. But I did watch... One of my personal favourites, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two. Oh right, in honour of, of in honour of, of Toby Hooper when on the on the day he died because that's okay. uh, that's one of my it's one of those films I just watch over and over and over and over again for some reason. I'd be fascinated to hear <laughs> what that reason would be, and never having seen it myself, perhaps we could make that next week's film club. And we could all have a proper discussion about it. Right? Yeah, it would be interesting because we... I think it's not a particularly likable film because right. it's like. You know, 17 years after the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh-huh. he, he returns with a kind of comedy version of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So if you were to pick one for a, an initiate like me who'd never seen Texas, etc. before, mm-hmm. would you go one or two? No, one is the great one. And and two is the kind of weirdy, like, oddity that, mm. that crashed and burned when it came out. Ah. But actually, it's it's got a Dennis Hopper performance in it, which is kind of... I don't want to say he's heavily narcotized because I'm sure he wasn't, but you'd probably say that's what a heavily narcotized man would look like if he was like running around with two chainsaws screaming. Yeah. Perhaps we won't do this as film club okay. next week. Um, here's uh, Harry saying, I was struck, Little White Lies, by your discussion of Wind River in last week's show. Uh, I think I will have to watch it. Yeah, I really enjoyed, just to recap, that got a, a harsher, a rougher time from, from other people, including yourself. Adam. But anyway, Harry says, as a response to the suggestion that Native Americans are pretty much sidelined in this story that pretty much concerns them, could uh, I suggest the 1998 film Smoke Signals, which is an all Native American production comedy drama? I've seen 87 movies so far this year, and it's among the very best, says Harry. 
Have you seen that smoke signals? I've not. I have. I've not seen. Wow. Okay. I have seen it. Yeah. And oh, it's, it's a sweet film. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure what the other '86 films that Harry's watched this year were, but I wouldn't put it necessarily. In I'd like to know what the other '86. Yeah, yeah. Harry, do let us know if you wanna give us a question or a message or any kind of comment, we can be contacted via email, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com, via Twitter, at LWLies, on Facebook, or by turning up and saying it to us in person uh, this Sunday, the 17th of September, when we will be at King's Place at 9.30pm as part of the London Podcast Festival. It's Truth and Movies live with a big uh, Close Encounters thing going on. And it will be a close encounter, actually. You know. It will, yeah. Yeah. Are we right. the aliens or the? I don't know. We'll have to decide on the night. Mm. Well, for anyway, from Mothership to Mother, our nice. first film after this. Why don't you want kids? Excuse me. <laughs> you know, you're not going to be so young forever. Have kids. Then you'll be creating something together. That's what keeps the marriage going. This this is all just setting. Oh, you do want them. Michelle Pfeiffer's house guest from hell there with a little bit of uh, friendly advice for Jennifer Lawrence in this extraordinary movie. I'm going to try and give a synopsis. It's a man suffering from writer's block he and his partner are living in an isolating home, which she is rebuilding, and their relationship is tested when uninvited guests start arriving. Some have been maddened by this film, some delighted. David, this was the first film you saw on your return from your trip. What did you think of it? Oh, golly. I'm not sure I can even say now. It's been just over a week since since we went and saw it, and uh, I, I think this kind of binary idea of love and hate doesn't really apply to a film like this. I think on one side, it is this amazing esoteric object that um, you just can't quite get your head around how he was allowed to make it. I mean, he, you know, this is made with Paramount Studios, which is one of the, the you know, the, the four or five big Hollywood studios. And the idea of him marching into a room, pitching this and them saying, yep, here's a load of money, go and make that movie. It baffles me. But his films have always had a deeply esoteric side to them. They usually do well, don't they? I think they're mixed. I mean, you know, like, I'm not that interested in things like box office. No. But I think this is a movie I, I'm, I'm very interested to see, you know, if people will turn up for it. It's the sort of film that you could recommend to people, but you'd have to give them, like, 10 or 11 caveats as uh, that come with that recommendation. And it's almost like a kind of personal test. You have to kind of know the person you're talking to, who you give recommendations to, and try and almost profile them a little to think... It's not for everyone. Are they going to sort of deal with this? Mm. And I mean... Was it for you then, David? Yes and no. I mean, I sort of like... It's love-hate. I thought, I mean, as, as a kind of... It's a very compelling film in that you're with these characters and then throughout the film just a lot of things happen and then just as you're about to sort of 
just it, it it doesn't really explore anything in much detail until it's moved on to another thing and it's just it's pure kind of reaction and yeah you don't get much analysis on what is actually happening yeah this is one of the extraordinary things about this film and one of the reasons why i was delighted to see it and would urge as many people to see it as possible is that that kind of elasticity of time of events and even of space where just as you're beginning to impose or feel like you understand the logic of a situation or even a timeline he immediately whips it out away from you but he does it in a kind of bizarrely coherent way I mean it's I think one of the best representations of a kind of dream state or more accurately a nightmare state that I can remember seeing it's also in technical terms brilliantly made this no in terms of the staging and the cast yeah I think we'll get onto this a bit more later when we talk about Requiem for a Dream Mm. but I think he's Darren Aronofsky is massively undervalued or underrated as a kind of technician as a technical filmmaker because he does some yeah pretty incredible things in this film in terms of the yeah the space and the setting and even though they live in this this sort of like isolated mansion-esque kind of property uh, in the middle of a forest there's the sense of sort of claustrophobia especially viewed from Jennifer Lawrence's point of view. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an intense film. That idea of like the cabin in the woods is very kind of classic horror. And he kind of toys with that. He sort of brings in a sort of bourgeois sheen of like the, the sort of artsy power couple who have, you know, been able to sort of cast everything aside. I mean, everything you sort of say about the film and these in the characters is essentially a kind of, you're imposing it on the film because it doesn't mm. really tell you. There's no context. It doesn't really tell you anything. So Nothing is literally anything. Perhaps. No. And that's one of the difficulties because there's a lot we would want to say about the film, but I think we'd, you'd probably want people to see it knowing as little about it as possible because it certainly starts off offering you one kind of journey and then <laughs> rapidly ditches that. I think what's great about this film is I, I've spoken to quite a few people about it now who have seen it and so many people have different readings and reactions to this film and I think if anything rather than talking about the events of the film we could maybe talk a bit about our own interpretations of it should I think we? This, I think we should because there's so many different readings of it I think when I watched the film I assumed to begin with that it was a there is a puzzle here there is an object and what does that object represent and how do, is everything linked together and then it became something about the appallingness of house guests and then it goes off into an entirely different thing that by the end I found it at times a deeply frustrating film, and some people, I think, walk out still deeply frustrated. The screening I was at, there was somebody shouting in the street he was so upset about it. <laughs> I think it's deeply funny and deeply satisfying, the, the ending for me. I, David, I don't think you felt as resolved about it. My issue with the film, and again, like I think, I think we're right to be cagey talking about this film because it lives or dies on just that element of surprise. So like, if it seems a bit vague, that's purposeful. But personally, I just I, I found it, it throws everything in the pot. It's very open. It allows it for interpretation. But for me, it does so to a point where it actually is so vague that I don't actually see the point of it. I mean, really? it's, yeah, it's... it's um, well, it's, it's funny because it, it, you called it esoteric before. And, I, and my interpretation, and I might be completely wrong, is that this is an extremely personal message from Aronofsky, not necessarily to the audience, but maybe to people that he's had close relations with. I get the sense of of, of, um, it being a personal message, but him not necessarily fully understanding where it's come from or what Mm. what he's trying to say. I don't think it is a kind of direct message to any one person or a critique of any one thing. You know, he, he puts so much of his own soul and energy and ideas in there. But another thing to say about Aronofsky is at this point in his career... It really feels like he's building a, a filmography and a kind of sense of authorship and auteurism, I guess, as well. Like, there's so many things that happen in his films, which, you know, look at 
something like Black Swan, which I think is the closest film he's made to something like Mother now. Mm. You know, little things in that about performance and, and sacrifice and the way kind of men manipulate women and vice versa. And yeah, there's so many little signifiers to his films now. That I mean, there is elements of Black Swan, but there is also, there's elements of Noah, there's elements of The Fountain, there's elements of exactly, Requiem for yeah. a Dream, there's elements of Pi, there's elements, maybe not so many elements of The Wrestler, which is his kind of, for me, I would say The Wrestler is, is maybe his most satisfying film. It's completely stripped back, very kind of raw human drama. It was a very soulful film, mm. whereas I think Mother is not a soulful film. That's the one outlier, I think, to his filmography. But everything else comes together in this kind of grotesque tapestry and you can see all the different threads Absolutely, where they link yeah. into each other. And this film is utterly spectacular visually, no? Mm. Particularly the kind of closing sequence. Perhaps in terms of giving people an understanding of whether they will enjoy this or not without revealing too much about the film, could we say that it's... Similar, perhaps, to some of Lars von Trier's works. If you, depending on where yeah. you stand on that, that might be how you react to this. Certainly, Dogville, I thought was Antichrist. I, mean, I never saw Antichrist, oh, yeah. but I've heard comparisons. Things like Antichrist, or also going back to like Rosemary's Baby and Possession and films like that. I mm. mean, there may be more obvious touchstones. Ir- irreversible. He... I don't know if you ever saw that one. I didn't know. But it's like it's very much in this kind of category of like ordeal cinema. Mm. It's sort of self-abuse cinema. But those are films that are literally about what they're about, whereas this isn't, if you take my meaning. Which film, well, sorry? Well, like, things like, uh, from what I understand, uh, Irreversible and uh, Rosemary's Babies, they have a story and that is what the film is about, whereas this, it's a parable. Whereas, I, I mean, I would say, though, that Irreversible is a better film for having a story. As grim and nasty as it is, it's actually it actually ends up being a very kind of moving, humane film, where like, because I think the characters are so roughly drawn in this film in mm. mother i wouldn't even call them characters they're broad sketches ideas of archetypes rather than actual people mm. i personally am a bit of a softy when it comes to movies and, and, and i do sort of react to sort of a, a slightly sentimental side to things mm. and um we know we'll get on to victoria and abdul later but like um i mean as much as aronofsky was very much shaking me in my seat while i was watching it and you know doing everything in in his power to sort of provoke a reaction. I'm not sure I I felt it inside. But I I must admit, I find that with Aronofsky's films in general, and again, we'll talk about this later with Requiem for a Dream, that that there isn't that obvious compassion for his characters, with the exception of perhaps The Wrestler, which, you know, as you say, is actually terrific. That said, although they be archetypes, what do we think of the cast? I think Aronofsky, again, talking about him being undervalued and underrated in some aspects his casting is just so impressive in this and and pretty much all his films I think people like uh, Jared Leto in Requiem for a Dream Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler Mm. Natalie Portman in Black Swan these are like iconic career defining performances and I think the the casting in this has been discussed a lot in terms of the age gap between Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem and I don't know whether there's in itself there's a comment there on like you know, Hollywood and the way female actors and male actors are sort of paired up generally. But this will be remembered as one of Jennifer Lawrence's best performances. Michelle Pfeiffer as well, winning applaudits galore for her turn as uh, one of the many guests. I like her reprising the role of Catwoman. Yeah. (laughs) Without the PVC onesie. She has a lot of fun in this film, I think. And and uh, Ed Harris as well. Ed Harris is excellent. Donald Gleeson and his brother Brian. Lots of creepy acting, of which Javier Bardem 
wins creepy acting prize of the well, year. Well, Kirsten Vig, which is one of the two kind of major kind of nods to the fact that this is a darkly funny film. A, the fact that she turns out. B, the fact that on the opening titles, when it announces the name of the film and puts the exclamation mark in with the ding of yeah, a yeah. typewriter <laughs> a comedy carriage dot. return. And we should yeah. say it fully earns that exclamation mark, I think. I think it's more exclamation mark than, than mother, yeah, to be honest. That's the, that's the emphasis. <laughs> it should just is... be called exclamation mark. Mm. Very interesting. Numbers in as much as you can give it numbers? Oh, God. <laughs> I, I think I've my ante- you know, for anticipation because I think there was an element that I was a bit nervous about this one. I think it was one that I was excited for, but at the same time was wary of the fact that it could go very wrong. So maybe like four and then threes for the other two, because I think, you know, I'm just down the middle on it. I think it's kind of spectacular and awful and, you know, (laughs) right at the same time. I mean, there's something that's kind of deeply repellent about it and about what I think it's saying. And at the same time, I'm I'm sort of impressed that he has the the moxie to to just say it. I mean, you know, like it's it's a weird one. (laughs) Should be chutzpah. Indeed, (laughs) yes. My scores would be five, four, three, only because it's a film that I don't necessarily want to revisit. And actually, you know, Aronofsky now has made a sequence of these types of films, and I would love to see him go and do something completely different now after this. Not necessarily on the same level as like The Wrestler, but moving away from this, you know, really grim, almost like endurance cinema. And but yeah, I would like to see him kind of switch it up a bit. I would love for this to do well at the box office. You know, against all odds, I guess. Let me give it a tiny little nudge by saying my anticipation was four. But my enjoyment at the time, I mean, it it fluctuates because it is a really maddening film. But there is, for me, a definite method in it. And so when I came out, I was absolutely buzzing. I give it a five and in retrospect a five. I think it's a brilliant film. I may not know what it's about. I think I do. All right, that was Mother. Next up is Victoria and Abdul. I'm afraid our news concerns the uh, Munchie... um, we have proof beyond any doubt that Abdul Karim is a, a low-born imposter, Your Majesty. The Munchie is from a noble family and a long line of teachers. No, I'm afraid he was a mere clerk in a common jail. My own son has sent word from India and has actually spoken to his immediate superior. His family are completely uneducated. His father is a lowly apothecary. The Munchie never even went to school, mother. The man's a complete fraud. Problems then when Queen Victoria gets the Munchie. I've not seen this film. What on earth's going on? Well, yes, it's the other the other VNA that we don't know about. Obviously, based on real events. Right? Did they say that at the start it, of the it film? Says, it says based on actual events. So were you really upset when that happened? Well, and then it says mostly. Right. There's a kind of and every, we had a bit of an argument last week over Wind River, uh, which at start says based on actual events, and Adam was like, Chuh. "Whenever I see based on a true story, based on actual events, I roll my eyes literally." Yes, literally. So but, did you roll your eyes? Well, in this case, I did, or? and then they clawed it back with the mostly. 
right. mean, we knew it would be based on actual Plus, events. Yeah, because it's, it's Queen Victoria. Yeah. What, what are they going to so do? So it's Judy Dench reprising her role as uh, Queen Victoria from mm. the film Mrs. Brown, which I think is made in the sort of mid late nineties. Nineteen ninety seven. There I you believe. go. Um, you dubbed this Mrs. Brown's Boy last week. Yes, yeah. and the clip we've just listened to is interesting because it makes it sound like quite a serious film. Actually, it's quite a farcical. I mean, the opening like half an hour or so of the film paints this picture of, of an elderly monarch who is basically like living out her days surrounded by these like pitiful yes men and people who are just kind of crowding around trying to climb this like royal rung to be in the kind of head of her household and her performance actually is, is very very funny and, and in a kind of very subtle unstated way but reminded me of ever seen um, Blackadder the Elizabethan Queenie Queenie, but mm. but specifically Miranda Richardson's performance as Queen Elizabeth, and yeah. the, the episode where Blackadder goes on a kind of voyage around the world, and she's just sort of really bored, and you know she's like throwing hoops on Melchett's hat. It's like the opening of the film is basically like that, and it's very very funny. With Tom Baker as the captain, yes, uh, of that ill-fated voyage. <laughs> well, now this is Stephen Frears. There's good Frears, and there's also bad. Where, where does this one get filed? Well, it's interesting actually. I mean. He, I think in the 90s, he used to be quite cool. He used to be the kind of... You had Mike Lee and Ken Loach. Mm. And then you had Stephen Frears, who was like the cool outsider who would do slightly more interesting... My Beautiful Laundrette. Exactly. Films like My Beautiful Laundrette and The Hit, your favourite. Oh, good Lord, that was him. Yeah. All right, The Grifters, there was another one. The Grifters, yeah. And now he's kind of turned into sort of Dickie Attenborough a bit. In fact... I was telling Adam this last night that um, a friend of mine called Adam has a, has a different Adam has a term for movies like this. He calls it like movie laxative. Hmm. It's kind of like movies that just sort of, <laughs> you know, they just it just kind of passes through you. It's interesting. There was a, an interview with him on Radio Four recently where he was talking about this, and um, he's kind of cantankerous in a very similar way to I imagine Queen Victoria is presented in this film, and. Um, yeah, I, I suspect that there's quite a sort of personal connection there between her depiction and his uh, sort of directorial mode. Um, he's very sort of like, I don't bother with any of that. I just point the camera and get him to do it and just sit back and it happens. He's not a creative huddle kind of guy. Okay. You know? The other thing he said that was interesting, actually, that, that he, he sort of sees this as actually uh, reflective of the Princess Diana, like the Munchie character who kind of comes into the household and mm. is rejected. He is, you know, could be seen as a representation of Diana who, you know, came into the royal household and was alone and rejected by all the toffs. Interesting. Did you get that, Adam? Did you get that it was supposedly a moving out of an isolated old woman finding joy and lightness in her final years? Or was it just a kind of bit of period laxative? It's a bit of both, I think. And, you know, you can read it as a, a study of like later life depression, I think. And Judy Dench is quite a familiar role to see her in, but she does something quite different with it. I mean... She's playing, as I say, a monarch at the end of their reign, and she knows she's coming to the end. And it's it's a slight melancholy air to everything, you know, the way she kind of moves. She's obviously like overweight and ill, and and you know, not very mobile. And he really like re-energizes her. The Munshi uh, Ali Fazal is the is the actor who, and he's he's very good actually. Um, the best scenes in the film are where they are sort of together. Um, I think the film leans a bit too much on the the mob in the royal household at Windsor around her who are just kind of... I mean, Eddie Izzard turns up as Bertie, her son, at one point, and it's a very, like, panto kind of performance. And there's, all, there's a, all, the, all the kind of royal household are sort of very sort of stock panto evil types. Yeah. So you've got Michael Gambon in there. He as, plays the Prime Minister. Simon Callow. 
Olivia Williams. So Simon sp- Callow plays Puccini. Doing a kind of Italian accent. Yeah. Super. It's quite something. It's quite cringeworthy, actually. But so, so there's a lot of stuff which, which I would say is like passable for a sort of Sunday evening TV is slot. Is it one but, to see with your parents? Oh, absolutely. I would recommend this to my mum and, and Grand to go and see, I think. Right. Uh, oh, and I would go with them. Yeah. It, my, my parents, not your parents. Yeah. <laughs> that would be strange. It is an enjoyable film that does, as you say, sort of passes the time and it, it sort of did the job of making me want to go back and read the Wikipedia entry about this guy's life and, and uh, well, interestingly, they don't reveal this to the end of the film, but it's based on his journals, which were discovered in 2010, I think. Before that, no one really knew about this story and I think it's a little bit of a shame that they didn't make more of that, the idea of him documenting this and maybe they could have told it more in his voice, putting you in that in that era of, of well, the Age of Empire and the fact that she's Empress of India and has basically no idea about their culture and he comes over and educates her on that and she's so willing, seemingly, to, to learn from him and, uh, you know, welcome him in, into the house. I think it is... It, I mean, although it is a very kind of, yeah, as you say, light Sunday night tea time treat kind of film, telling a story of British Empire through the kind of plush halls of the royal estates and, you know, the, the kind of funny poshos who kind of fill out that world i actually found it a bit more interesting in in that you know you have got someone who you know who's discovering for the first time this empire that she is the kind of the ruler of Mm. and sort of reach this point where she realized she doesn't actually know anything about it and in the end even though he kind of tries to teach her urdu and he he sort of tells her stories about that world he's quite protective of her as well he Mm. won't he won't like he kind of redact some of the really bad stuff and I think that's a really nice thing that you know it's not just a very simple tale of oppressors wanting revenge it's like you know his character sort of turn, t- turns the other cheek not quite Stockholm Syndrome right. but, <laughs> but, but you're a big softie Dave you explained this but you, you were charmed by this it, it reminded me of Roman Holiday have, oh, you, yeah. have you ever seen that the Gregory yeah. Peck Audrey Hepburn where she's sort of the queen who gets let out the palace and gets to sort of hang with the real people and yeah it had a sort of like element of that to it kind of you know one thing i will say is the film does really like condense the story and the timeline of it and apparently he was uh, in real life he was a very close confidant and aide for more than 15 years and in this film it feels like it could be like a couple of months or so Mm. but you know yeah the legacy of it is the indian durbar room at osborne house on the isle of Wight. so i mean if you if you're interested I, i would say See the film and then maybe make a make a trip Pilgrimage. over there and well, you see can it. see costumes from the film oh, in the right? Indian Durbar room at Osborne House, which was uh, Queen Victoria's seaside residence mm. on the island. That's until the thirtieth of September. Mm. That's Victoria Abdul scores, gentlemen. I'm going to go threes across the board, but it would be a you know very positive. Job well done, kind of. Okay, yeah, I yeah. think threes are you know. same, same. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's a sort of. Actually, do you know what? I would say maybe two, three, three, because I've got to say, I really wasn't expecting much from this. Had I not had to see it to talk about it now, I probably would have left that one to the, the trash bin of cinema. But like, not the trash bin, but like, you know, mm. an undiscovered planet almost. Yeah. Yes. All right, then. Hey, next up, it's the Little White Lies Film Club. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way 
so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash boast. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Little White Lies Film Club, everybody. And this week, from our vault of uh, classics, uh, movies you may have missed or that are worth reappraising, we have plucked to mark the release of Mother. Ding! Darren Aronofsky's visceral but stylish thriller, it says here, Requiem for a Dream. Synopsis, Adam? Yeah, based on the Hubert Selby Jr. novel, follows the drug-induced utopias of four Coney Island people who are all suffering from various addictions. Mm, Various different ways of having a reason to get up in the morning. Here is one of the four, Ellen Burstein, sitting in the sun with her friends discussing diets. Ada told them, it's gorgeous. Yeah. We're going to make it a little darker tomorrow. Why darker? To go with my red dress. Yeah, but now it's looking like Madonna. This is not Madonna. And neither is this. But soon, I'm going on a diet. What diet are you on? Eggs and grapefruit. Oh, I was on that one. Lots of luck. It's not so bad. How long you been on it? All day. All day. It's one o'clock. I'm thinking thin. She's thinking thin. My Louise, she lost 50 pounds just like that. Like that? Like what? Poof. What'd you do, put her in a sweat box? (laughs) She went to a doctor and he gave her pills you don't want to eat. So, what's so good about that? Not an easy watch, this one. (laughs) What did you, the listener, make of it? Yeah, we've got some uh, positive and negative reactions mm. to this. So, at Natty W says, pretty grim watching, but so good. Worked much better than the Grange Hill Just Say No campaign for me. Outpost 31 says, equal parts beautiful and soul shredding. David Blythe says, not a film to revisit. Sorry about that, David. So bleak. And Ali Gunner says, might be the single worst film I've ever seen. Wow. A bold statement, but yeah. 
from Facebook, uh, Martin Conterio, Little White Lies contributor and uh, Twin Peaks recapper, says Requiem for a Dream is one of the films which serves as a wonderful reminder of why I love cinema and devoted my life to it. It is everything, caps, and some effing bravura filmmaking. Hot damn, that score. Wow. This was a brilliant early dating the woman of your dreams kind of movie. That said, we did get married in the end, so it didn't completely ruin my chances. So that was Gerald Strother. And this one by uh, Alex Bentley, possibly the least funny film ever made. <laughs> it's actually mentally damaging. It's that unfunny. Uh, I get that it wasn't meant to be a comedy in any shape, but it really is an exercise in hopelessness. Amazing, though. It is an amazing film. On the subject of the score, Andrew Donlan saying, Harrowing, could only face watch it once, but what an amazing soundtrack. Mike Bridgman, Clint Mansell, mm. from Pop Will Eat Itself to this. I didn't realise it was the same. Yeah, yeah, same. One of your bands. They weren't particularly, <laughs> oh, okay. David, but others of my generation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I've got, say, I've got to say, though, the Clint Mansell score is, is amazing and so f- familiar now. But, yeah, re-watching this, having not seen it for a while, and, and that score having been kind of used I think we should so start much. off talking about the score. Well, well that's, what, that's what yeah, I'm doing. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, it was funny watching it because I just was... It irked me, actually, the score, because it's like a song you hear on the radio that's been played to death. Even in context of the film in which it was written for, it kind of irked me. Speaking of things that were originated perhaps in this film that have been done a lot since, mm. what about the visual style, the fast cuts? Oh, yeah. Um, Ian, producer Ian, who sat on the other side of the, the, the little yeah. bit of glass there, says uh, the drug-taking sequences have very much reminded him of some of Edgar Wright's editing in Space, which was actually before... Mm. Uh, this film, and of course, subsequently his Cornetto trilogy is deeply similar to the the drinks and similar in Shaun of the Dead and the whole gun work in, in Hot Fuzz. There's also, I think, parallels with a film that was made significantly before, Train Spotting. But I think Edgar Wright was basically copying Sam Raimi, who was doing right. that editing in like The Evil Dead in the 80s. Was he? Okay. I, I think I read someone referring to it as hip hop montage, which is this. Super, super fast at cuts, like bringing things like dot, 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 dot. Sort of very, very staccato. Hip-hop montage. Yes. Yeah. It does borrow quite heavily from the kind of horror template of of editing and filmmaking and some of the camera work. There's the the amazing shot where Marlon Wayans' character is running away from the car and the camera is kind of mounted, almost facing back at him. Snorri cam. Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. For 2000, I think that's a, a sort of technique that you see quite a lot now and... Yeah, for 2000, it must have seemed quite kind of radical, and for, for even for a film like this, I mean, it was maybe being used by people at like Sam Raimi a bit earlier, but um, not, I guess, not that widely. But it's, it's incredible mm. technique. I mean, the effect of that drug-induced mania that the characters are going through, and the actual, as you say, the hip-hop montage stuff of them preparing the drugs and then taking them, the effect of that is just is incredible. Mm. We had a, a whole bunch of things that we were saying earlier about Mother that related to this, and we'll talk about this later. One of the things, I was wondering just how much compassion there is in Aronofsky's films. A lot of people have found this film deeply harrowing, deeply emotionally, almost disturbing. I must admit, although it's unbelievably bleak in what it says about the human condition, I almost sense a detachment from Aronofsky, almost, almost an amusement at times about the way these people choose to live their lives, the decisions they make. I don't feel an empathy from him in this and possibly in other films as well, like Pi, a film about the guy who's way cleverer than the rest of the class. Yeah, he's very much like a kind of guy whose characters are like 
little kind of voodoo dolls that he just sort of sticks pins into and gets a kind of kick out of doing that. I sort of felt with, with Requiem for a Dream, you are introduced to all these characters and they are kind of like charming losers. You know they're on the highway to hell and you, you don't want them to go there, but at the same time it's sort of always, you know, from the very off it seems com- entirely inevitable. It's a very simple kind of algorithm, you know. He, he makes you like some people and then he does lots of bad things to them. So, I mean, it's... Or they do yeah, it to themselves. And, or yeah. they do it to themselves. Well, or, well do they? Um, or, you know, <laughs> I mean, you probably could have adapted this book in a different way and what Aronofsky's done with this film is to sort of highlight the kind of sensory elements of you know the sort of very quick cuts that lead to the drug taking Mm. followed by the sort of soporific highs and you know the detachment from the world and responsibility that comes from afterwards and you I think you watch it and you know it's this kind of like Mother, it's like a crescendo. It's just a sort of accruing of detail, mounting up of little things, you know, and it just gets to a point and it just explodes four times in a, in really kind of violent ways. Um, mm. Studio Muragir says, any chance you could share your thoughts on my favourite Aronofsky film, The Fountain, along with this week's film club? Where do you stand on The Fountain? And, and, and indeed, where would you put this one, Requiem for a Dream, in, the, in, his, in his pantheon? Yeah, in his oeuvre. Oh, I don't know if we're ranking them. That would be very tricky, I think. But I'm a big fan of The Fountain, though. Big fan of Hugh Jackman. I think it's one of his best performances. And, yeah, that, the interesting thing about that, maybe there's a bit more compassion there from Aronofsky in terms of the characters. And it it's not quite as soulful as something like The Wrestler, but there's definitely heart in the film, I think. And it's dealing with people who aren't necessarily inherently good or anything like that, but they're not low life or kind of reprobates or or people who to some extent the bad things that happen to them are down to their own fault i mean it's dealing with someone who's got a terminal illness basically and a brilliant scientist who's trying to cure her so yeah i can see there's definitely more like compassion in the characters but in Requiem for a Dream I'm not sure the compassion thing is really like it's a bit of a moot point I think is I don't know how much you're really supposed to be invested in the characters or like them it's a kind of just very it is a detached kind of study of these mm. of these people and almost glib yeah points. actually I'd say that's I would like, say it's quite like I mean just a very I'll be very quick on the fountain and say I think it's an abomination <laughs> but like uh, and, and no no, 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 so no, no I don't want to say any more on that I mean really? I, I think it should be self-evident to anyone who's seen it including uh, Adam yeah, Adam. <laughs> but I actually think The Requiem for a Dream is quite a conservative film it feels very preachy it feels very like you could imagine some very um, liberal school showing it as a kind of kids don't do drugs movie you mm. know because it's like the ultimate downside of that kind of lifestyle choice when I originally saw it I was in university and uh, I was in Liverpool at the time and there was only like one cinema there and it only would show the kind of mainstream film so every Friday I had to bunk off and travel to Manchester to see whatever was at the corner house cinema which is amazing and um, I was at at the kind of 11am screening of this in their main cinema on my own and uh, it was a very, very bizarre experience and I was very rattled by it and found it very... I had to sort of rush home and try and tell all my friends in Liverpool about it and couldn't quite explain it to them. But, yeah, rewatching it now, it feels it, it does actually feel a bit sort of preachy and uh, I guess a similar film would be something like Train Spotting. But I think that has more of a kind of ambiguous relationship to drugs. I mean, it's not... I, I don't necessarily think it's a kind of anti-drugs movie, even though it shows the downsides, but it's more of a kind of balanced take on that world and it's more about the human characters, whereas this is like all addictions are awful. If you're someone who's prone to that, you're going to die in a really violent way. Yet at the what? same time, though, it says uh, when she's talking about 
her addiction, not so much the amphetamines, but to her dream of going on television. Ellen Burstyn describes it as the reason, it gives me a reason to get up in the morning, a reason to smile, it makes tomorrow all right. And that's the bleakest thing, I guess, about the film, the fact that it's not just kind of shadows. Basically, we all psychologically need something to cling on to, and so few of us perhaps naturally get it. Yeah, it's a film about how people medicate themselves from the realities of of the world, right? Mm. And the preachy thing, like, what's, like, the message of the film then? Because it's not saying, like, hey, kids, don't do drugs, you know? It's just showing kind things. Of is, in it. Though, isn't it? is well, it really, though? Because that's, like, implied, because taking drugs taking heroin is like you know that is not going to end well for anyone right it doesn't obviously it's not a film that glorifies that or glamorizes it I think in this you know similar to Mother I think it's a very like angry film mm. and it's I mean Aronofsky you know he appears to be a very angry man and wants to and he likes to use cinema to sort of air his grievances in, in a way and, and He's sort of taking aim at this kind of venal culture of like of, of addiction, of TV, of drugs. Of, Must have been, I don't get angry so much and, from this film. It's just kind of observation. Yeah, and, I and think observation. And he's just it's a critique of like TV culture of with the Jennifer Connelly character, especially the way she's kind of abused and brought into this like very seedy world of male manipulation. And but the world's attached to all these kind of addictive yeah. things are, are all horrible i mean you know mm. where, where jennifer connelly has to go to get her money and the sort of surreal representation of, of tv as being this kind of in, this bizarre infomercial mm-hmm. it's the most sort of base debased horrible mm. rubbish thing you know we, we never find out tappy's third thing though he, he says give up processed sugar mm-hmm. give up red meat and Again and again, or I think repeatedly, we hear the start of the third thing. He says, this is the one that really drives people crazy. Yeah. And nobody can handle it, but we never hear what it is, do no, we? I don't think so. I guess that's the point, isn't it? Oh, yeah. There isn't a third thing, maybe. I There's don't know. no but... third thing. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. That was Requiem for a Dream. Do hope you enjoyed that. What are we going to do then in next week's film club? Adam. Next week, hopefully on the show, we'll be discussing Kingsman, The Golden Circle. Mm. Uh, well, we should have two shows, we think, next week. We're going to put out the live show as a kind of bonus edition. Right, coming up this Sunday at King's Place in the London Podcast Festival, 9.30. Yeah, but we'll also do our regular show next week. Hopefully we'll, we'll do Kingsman on that. Mm-hmm. And because Julianne Moore is in this one as the baddie, mm-hmm. I believe, we thought we'd revisit one of her kind of uh, slightly earlier films. I would say one of her sort of early defining roles. Yeah, which is uh, Far From Heaven. Mm. Todd Haynes film. It's Todd Haynes going like 50s melodrama. It's a very loose remake of the Douglas Sirk film All the Heaven Allows. And um yeah, it's extraordinary. And um I, I rewatched it recently before Carol came out, which I also think is extraordinary. And yeah, those films are just you know, they're just another level. But I, I should wait and say all this next yeah. week, shouldn't I, really? If you're on, absolutely. Yeah. If you'd like to throw anything else into the mix, you can email us truthandmovies at tcolondon.com uh, on Twitter it's LWLies and there's Facebook as well was there anything else you'd like to add Adam? Not for me this week actually David I, I've got a thing I'd love to add actually um, before you come to the King's Place podcast festival mm. if you want to see some incredible cinema we're actually hosting alongside Mubi a screening of the 80s French teen movie classic Anne Amours on a glistening 35mm print at one o'clock at the Rio Cinema in uh, in Dalston. Hackney. Oh, Hackney, yeah. Um, oh, Dalston, yeah. Mm. Um, and uh, we're going to be doing a, a little kind of talk and panel after that as well. And if I'm able to channel all my earthly enthusiasms into one film, it would be this one. Um, right. The name again? The name of the film is Anne Amour, Two Hour right. Loves. 
uh, which, which is the translation. But it's, Super. it's uh, by the French director Maurice Pialat, who is very unheralded, but is absolutely one of the, the all-time greats, in, wow. in my opinion. All right, and another of the all-time greats, Steven Spielberg, is going to be largely the subject of our Sunday night show at the London Podcast Festival. We're going to go big on the new release, or the re-release, sorry, of Close Encounters. Yeah, it's back in cinemas, 4K restoration for its 40th anniversary, and we'll on be that talking note, about that. we were talking last week about who we'd like to see direct Star Wars 9. Yeah. And you guys, when the news broke that it's going to be J.J. Abrams, who did what many would feel was a very fine job retrieving the legend from the mire of the prequels with episode seven that he will be returning to take over nine oh. what, what do you think good news uh it's, i think it's as Not inspiring bothered. as like ron howard doing it something it'll have, it'll have just been like more lens flare we all saw the book of henry yeah so this kind of switch up at the top kind of makes sense to me i mean as much as i would have probably have liked to see the sort of the mindset behind the book of henry channeled into a uh, star wars film where like luke dies halfway through and leaves Leaves some instructions for Ray well, there was a genius, to, to kill. There was a genius tweet last week, which is Colin Trevorrow is not going to be directing it, but he's left very precise instructions. Yeah, yeah. For, uh, <laughs> but anyway, I don't know. Steven Spielberg was uh, a lot of people wonder why he maybe didn't come back and kind of square the circle or whatever. And other people saying, write the historical wrong, give it to David Lynch. Who of oh. course, was down to do. Jedi. Um, was it Jedi or Empire Strikes Back? Jedi, yeah. right. I genuinely wonder if Lucas could have like stepped back into the ring and, and I, I know he, he was obsessed with his prequels and that kind of weirdy, talky, I don't think they'd bureaucratic... Let him, I don't think they'd let him near it. I wonder if, having seen the success of these two films, the Rogue One and, and Force Awakens, he would have thought, yeah, I, I could maybe channel some of that other energy from from the original saga back into this. Sadly, that hasn't happened. No, it hasn't no. happened. All right, anyway, there He's you go. He's left to count his money alone. <laughs> okay, then, listeners, uh, we're out of here. We'll see you uh, perhaps on Sunday, but then certainly next week. In the meantime, this has been a 7 Digital production. 